love this image. Um, this is not super related. I mean, it is a little bit, but not super related to what we're doing tonight. Although it is in a bigger picture. This is a, it's called a Pantocrator icon. I love that because it's a, this is a Russian Orthodox church and the way Orthodox churches are designed is to have that icon of Christ in the center at the dome. I think that's so cool. Um, we'll look at why a little bit later, but kind of that image of the beginning of Revelation, if you remember, you know, the foundation for the book of Revelation is the ascension of Christ. You can't end at the end of the Gospels. Um, you have to understand Luke, the beginning of Acts, the ascension of Christ, because he's ascending, and we'll look at later, he's not ascending to go to heaven so he can take us there too. He is um, ascending to reign over the universe at the right hand of the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7. So I love that icon. It's a reminder of where Christ is now. One, clearly he's still embodied. He's still incarnate. He didn't lose his body when he ascended. It's fundamental. Uh, but also he's ruling over the church, over the world. I love that icon. It's so beautiful. Um, so we're going to do the other half of last week. And the difficulty of teaching these two things is they're so interlocking that it's hard to divide it up into two weeks, but there's so much content you have to. So that's kind of the thing is if you weren't here for part one, this might be a little confusing. If you're only here for this part, this might be a little confusing as well. Um, so I'm sure someone could fill you in on last week. I'm sure hopefully there are lots of... Did anyone you know flip back to a default in any noticeable time this week? You know, any songs you heard that were very default? Um, yeah, I'm sure there were. You don't have to share if you don't want to. Um, <laughs> but you'll just be on the lookout for that. And any pop culture, any songs, Christian messages, Christian Bible studies, you know, they're not all created equal. Any Christian Bible studies you might read and see, I don't know about that. That sounds awfully Gnostic or Platonic. So be on the lookout for that. Evaluate what Christian media, but also just pop culture in general, what they are saying about um, the, the goal of Christian living. This is something our friend up here has run into a lot. Franklin, talking about you. Just, he, he likes to talk to people about this stuff. And he, he will talk to, you know, lifelong Christians. They're like, what are you talking about? Or he'll talk to non-Christians. And he's just telling them, yeah, the, the Christian hope is bodily resurrection. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, I've never heard of this in my life. This is insanity. And it's like, yeah, I, I mean, that is very bizarre how something so essential to biblical doctrine has been downplayed so much. And it is odd that the end of Revelation 20, 21, 22 is the resurrection, bodily resurrection of the dead, the judgment seat of Christ, right? And then the new creation. Three things which are fundamental to Christian doctrine and Christian hope that tend to get downplayed among Christians, which is so bizarre to me. <laughs> or, or, but also the defeat of Satan. I forgot the fourth one. The downfall of Satan. We don't like to talk about that. The bodily resurrection. We've never heard of that. The judgment seat of Christ. Well, we don't really talk about that. And then the new physical creation on earth. Well, we've never even heard of that. And there's like four essential hopes that Revelation is pointing to in the final words of the whole Bible. Of course, there are those bookends on each end, Genesis and Revelation, that share a lot of themes from one another. The garden, the tree, the river, Jesus is the second Adam, there's no more death, um, stuff like that. So to begin, though, to do, just for a summary, tonight will be new creation. When I say new heavens and new earth or new creation, those are synonymous. Could, much like resurrection of the dead and bodily resurrection, I'm referring to the same exact thing. I just move in and out of terms based on where I'm at. For example, in Isaiah 65, it'll be new heavens and new earth. Um, but in uh, first Second Corinthians 5, it'll be new creation, um, meaning the exact same thing. Uh, sorry to explain this. So this is a place to start in the garden, right? And I'll, uh, I'll explain this a little bit. This might freak some of you out more than anything we've talked about. I'll put it over here on this side. So, it's, so in Genesis, it is not, and it's kind of a misnomer to say the Garden of Eden. It is technically a garden in Eden. Because it says that the Lord made Eden, and in the east of Eden, he planted a garden. So it is not that the garden is equal to Eden. There is Eden, and then there's a garden in Eden. Okay? Adam is actually formed out here, and it says that there was no bush in the field. Um, there was no animals yet. No man had been formed yet. So Genesis 2 goes out there and shows how Adam was formed actually outside the garden. Eve was inside the garden. But the point is, the garden is this intersecting space where God and man can dwell together. 
Okay, that's hugely foundational because that will be the goal of the whole Bible is to bring you back there to the intersecting space where God and man dwell together. Okay, again, the goal of the Bible is not for you to go to heaven. There is that intermediary state. And actually, Noah brought up a, a great point. He says, what about John 14? When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house, there are many rooms. I take you to myself so we can be together. Great part to point out. One, Jesus is talking about his approaching death. So he's talking about the intermediary state. And what they mean, what do you mean you're leaving us? Say, I'm going to prepare in my father's house. But that, that word to prepare a room for you is the precise Greek word for a temporary dwelling. I go to prepare a hotel room for you. We're going to stay in my father's house for a momentary time, and I'll bring you to myself. So he is assuring them of that life after death. But, of course, as we all know, Jesus taught the life after, life after death, the resurrection beyond that. One of my favorite writers, he has a funny line he always says. He says, heaven's great, but it's not the end of the world. Meaning, <laughs> heaven, the after we die intermediary state, it's wonderful. It's good. Christ will be there. We will be, we, we will be no longer burdened by any deficiencies or disabilities or pains that we were in, yet that is not the goal and the purpose of the world. The world is moving to a goal beyond that, to a new creation and bodily resurrection in a newly physical created world. Right? Heaven's great, but it's not the end of the world. Right? It's moving beyond that to new creation. But Eden is this intersecting space of the Lord's space and uh, man's space. So think of it as these Venn diagram circles. In Eden, they are overlapping entirely. Okay? Well, specifically, in the garden, they are overlapping entirely. But as we all know the story, Adam and Eve sin, and those circles are then separated, pretty much completely. But they come back together in small parts, and then you have this overlapping section in small ways throughout the biblical story. <clears throat> garden, of course, the ark actually made the, uh, Noah's ark. Maybe. There's a funny little... Uh, symbolism in Noah's Ark where it's Eden all over again. There's a man on a boat made of wood of a tree, a lot of trees in Eden, and he's surrounded by animals and his wife. And he's given the command, be fruitful and multiply. The Lord, rest, the Lord was with him. The water subsided. He gets off the ark. What's the first thing he does? Plants a garden. Builds an altar, yes, <laughs> and then plants a garden. And he's fruitful and multiplies. And then he has children so he gets off the ark and immediately starts the Eden blessing all over again, right? So that's a question mark. <clears throat> Jacob's dream, in a small way, God overlapped these circles in this tiny spot. And if you go to the place where Jacob had this dream, it's hilarious. It's, um, it's a hillside covered in rocks, all the same size. And he brings his friend, his family back there and goes, we got to find the rock that I had that dream on the other night. And you look at the places that there's like a billion rocks here. It's like, and they found it. I mean, it's crazy. It's like, it's quite a funny story. But it's in this one place. You see a staircase. I know we say ladder, but the staircase ascending and with angels descending and ascending on it. It's this tiny little place where these circles of heaven and earth have overlapped in a small way. The burning bush, of course, is another one. Moses, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. In this space, heaven and earth are overlapping in a small way. That bush, ironically, is called a sneh bush a snap bush, and God says, you, this will be a sign to you. You will come back here, and you'll worship me. So they come back to Mount Sinai in Hebrew. Sne, Sinai. It's supposed to be a mountain named after a tree. Eden all over again, right? And on this mountain, of course, the same thing at Sinai. The fire comes down, smoke comes down, both representing the presence of God. One man, Adam, but Moses, is allowed to go up into the presence of God, and now we have another overlapping place, right? Top of Sinai. So if you're wondering how to climb the mountain, Sinai is actually the Hebrew word for molar. It's, so it's a mountain shaped like a molar. So it's a very flat top mountain. Uh, and then, of course, in a more predominant way, the tabernacle. Now, what's interesting about the tabernacle and the temple is that the inside of it was decorated like Eden. <laughs> Remember, they put trees in. They had images of cherubim and seraphim. The priests were supposed to be Adam-like. They were supposed to wear special garments so they didn't sweat because there's no sweating in Eden. It's pre-cursed stuff. You work by the sweat of your brow now. We're going to do pre-sweat work, right? It's very Eden-like. But it's in the Holy of Holies is this small space where these two circles of this Venn diagram overlap and intersect. And still, one man is allowed to go in there once a year, the high priest. 
the temple, of course, is a, the tabernacle is, of course, is the mobile temple. The temple then in Jerusalem is the stationary temple. But the same thing in the burning bush, in Sinai, in the tabernacle, in the temple. What is the sign of God's dwelling in all of those? Uh, yes, but when they dedicate all of those, fire comes down from heaven, showing that God is dwelling in this place. Meaning, God is coming down to dwell with humans in this small place that intersects and overlaps where heaven meets earth. So the temple is the heaven and earth place. It's where heaven meets earth. It's quite interesting because when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We, that is not him saying the end of the space-time order of the cosmos. He's saying the heaven and earth will pla- place will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He's actually in Jerusalem overlooking the temple on the Mount of Olives. So they know what he's talking about. And then, of course, in a more forward sense, the incarnate Christ. He is the temple in person. He is God become human while being fully God and fully human. He is the embodiment of the temple. And if you know the Jerusalem narratives, this town's not big enough for two temples. So Jesus rebukes the temples, tells parables about the high priest in hell, which means Lazarus. He goes into the temple, cleanses it, not of the Romans, but of the priests. Says, in 40 years, within a generation, 40 years, this temple will be destroyed, and it is. And then Pentecost, what happens? Fire comes down from heaven and fills his new temple, right? The church. So the heaven and earth place now is us. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but that I don't have time to draw out all the implications of that. But we, collectively, as the church, are the temple of the living God. We are where heaven meets earth. You don't have to bring someone to Jerusalem. You bring them to your gathering. Because Christ is with us, because we are his temple. Right? That's amazing to me. I'll let you think about that for a bit. But the whole point is... Uh, one, Adam is put in Eden, and God says to work it and to keep it. So that's taking care of the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. That's creating more bodies, more people. So it's both of these ideas, bodiliness and creation-oriented ideas. Last week was bodily resurrection, the restoration of that Eden blessing, and the new creation, the restoration of that Eden blessing. So Adam and Eve had this twofold commission to be fruitful, multiply, create more baby humans, and to work it and keep it, the garden. So take care of the earth, take care and create more people. And I would suggest that although those circles have been separated, the Lord is not giving up on his plan. He is not giving up on the Eden plan. Okay? The plan that that garden would spread to all of Eden, all of the earth. So there's this beautiful flourishing garden but a chaotic outer garden that Adam was to spread this garden to and that is still the plan that's why Israel is given the promised land as a sort of mini Eden you take this to the ends of the earth so because um, heaven and earth are these interlocking overlapping I think the word dimension is good of course the Bible doesn't use that but these interlocking overlapping dimensions right (laughs) Don't think of it so much as heaven is way up there and earth is way down here and they're really far apart. I know sometimes verticality is used as an illustration for heaven, like Christ ascending, but that's a little bit different of an image. Christ is not ascending to go to heaven. He's he's ascending to be enthroned as king, right? And actually the word for his return, parousia, is not really the word for return. It's the word for appear, so it's a confusing metaphor because he ascends, but then appears. But we just retranslate it as return, which makes sense in English. But think of it as these two realities, these dimensions, separated by a thin veil. That's what you said today. There's this thin veil separating heaven and earth. As a lesser, although this is gorgeous, as a lesser example, kind of more Gothic, uh, medieval Catholic architecture, look at the verticality. Everything is vertical, or even consider this, the Sistine Chapel. This is, again, where we get this Platonism stuff. Not that this isn't beautiful, not that they didn't get stuff right. Of course they did. But notice it's, look what's down here. Look how boring, I mean, it's beautiful, but it's curtains. But what matters is up there is where heaven is. And you can't get up there unless you sing. 
And so when the church sings, the voices collect and they sing with the heavens as we sing. Cool image, great, greatly encouraging and inspiring to people who are illiterate and can't read. This is a great image to say we join in heavenly choruses as we sing, as our voices lift and the acoustics of the church would gather in the top. But consider this. It is a different image of different church architecture, the Orthodox Church. To them, this is called the Templon. Um, it's just a different way to think about it, about these overlapping, intersecting dimensions instead of far apart. Back behind that separation barrier, that partition, they kind of consider the heaven space. And out here, where the congregants might stand, would be the earth space. And during the liturgies, this door will be open, and a priest will go in and out of them, incensing both, bringing icons in and out, bringing the sacraments in and out, bringing a cool procession is taking the Gospels and bringing them from heaven to the earth space. Isn't that cool to see the Word of God treated that way? But specifically the Gospels, because they're about Christ becoming incarnate, coming from heaven to earth. Yeah. This is a Eastern Orthodox Church. Okay. So their building is designed in a little bit different of a way to reflect the more heaven and earth as these very intimately connected, overlapping dimensions, right? Because it's really cool because they incense, and you have to agree with this, but they incense the icons as saints back in heaven, but also come out and incense you as saints because heaven and earth are not that far apart. And so there are these Realities separated by such a thin veil. I, I, I think of Elisha's servant. Do you remember when he was scared to go into battle in Kings? And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open his eyes that he can see. And the, his servant doesn't look up and see something in the heavens. He opens his eyes and looks out of the battlefield. And then he sees all the chariots of the angel armies. It's this thin veil that was pulled away right in front of him, right in front of his eyes. He just couldn't see it. And I know we already know this because we talk about spiritual warfare in that sense too. Not spiritual warfare up in the heavens, Michael, the archangel fighting. Whoever, no, we talk about right here in the present. If we could see the warfare that goes on in this very room and the, and the reality behind this thin veil, we wouldn't see the same. And so that, to me, is a good idea to kind of talk about holy places. I won't talk too much about that, but holy places and holy times. Right? There is maybe a, uh, a justification for holy places. Places where that veil seems a little thinner. Or times where that veil seems a little thinner. Someone on their deathbed. And I think Jesus would even say, whatever you did for the poor, the sick, those in prison, what you did for the least of those, you did for me. So there's this interesting sense in which serving the marginalized, that veil separates and thins and thins a little bit more to where you feel like you're serving Christ himself even though you're serving a human. Who's, well, he's a human, but serving someone who's not Christ. So I like that uh, idea. And of course, in a sense, Revelation as a whole is the apocalypsis, the revealing. That's what the book means. The first word of the book is the revealing. It's the pulling back of that veil. And Jesus taking John and saying, look into heaven. He didn't whisk him away to heaven vertically. He pulled back the veil right in front of his eyes and let him look at the reality he couldn't see. And then John goes in and out of these realities. It's a very close thing. So all that kind of to say, um, heaven and earth are meant for each other. They're supposed to be meant for each other. Um, Here's how, if you're interested, I won't leave this up forever. And you can take a picture of it after if you want. But this is how Eden mimics the temple. The layout of it, the imagery in it, the trees in it. Uh, It's supposed to really be the same thing. This is a mini Eden and priests are new Adams, which is why Jesus, the second Adam, uh, had quite a bit of a tussle with the priests. And if you read Acts, almost all the arguments are about temples. They're arguing about temples because now the church is doing the work the temple and the priests should be doing, but the priests are failing their job. And quite interesting. I'll let you look at that after if you really want to. Actually, I'll just leave it up there right now. Um, in union with, you, you know, unified to this, right? heaven and earth are not far apart. They're meant for each other. These Venn diagrams are supposed to be overlapping. Um, the, the purpose of, again, the Bible, the purpose is that God would dwell with man. That was Eden, that was Sinai, there's a tabernacle, that's the temple, that God would come down and dwell with man. That was the point of the temple. If you remember, the, there's multiple sacrifices in the temple, don't forget that. And the Day of Atonement was a goat, not a sheep. Ask me about that later, it's quite interesting. 
But what they would do, I shouldn't have said that, but what they do, you're not going to be thinking about that. But what they, the priests would do when they inaugurated the temple was they would take blood of the sacrifice and they would go in and sprinkle clean the inside of the holy place, which is different than what they do elsewhere in other times. The point was, when they purified this holy place, God could come down and dwell here with us because we've cleansed it. So when Paul says that our hearts have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ, that's a different imagery than the Day of Atonement. That's a different imagery than Passover. That's saying your heart has been sprinkled clean and cleansed so that God can come down and dwell in you, in this Holy Spirit. It's all about God coming to dwell with us, with us, with us. Um, if you remember the book of Matthew, I hope you do. This is the goal of, actually, I'll back up a little bit to actually Ezekiel's vision. The punishment in reverse for Israel's failure was that Ezekiel has this vision where the glory of the Lord is in the temple and it does a vertical takeoff and then takes off to the east. Ichabod, he calls it. The glory has departed from Israel. So then the hope of the prophets is not, is not, is not that we would go to heaven one day. The hope of the prophets is that the Lord would return in Zion to reign. That is the gospel from Isaiah 52. Go and tell them the Evangelion, the gospel Isaiah. What shall I tell them? Tell them that your God reigns. That's the, that's the gospel from Isaiah that Jesus talks about. It's the message that the Lord is coming back to reign, and not the Lord is going to take you to disembodied heaven. Again, I have to say that a million times until so finally it clicks, and that, that's because that's what it took me. It took me a million times to hear this until it clicked. In the book of Matthew, then, that was the hope of the prophets. We have the intertestamental period. How does the book of Matthew start? His name shall be Emmanuel, God with us, God with us. <laughs> and the book of Matthew ends, surely I am with you to the very end of the ages. Not, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to take you with me. I will be with you. This is the purpose that God would, because the incarnation of Christ is God has come to dwell with his people. That's exactly where John takes it in a different way. In the beginning was the word, the word was God, became man, and tabernacled is the word, became a tabernacle among us. Now remember the tabernacle. It's where heaven meets earth, but it's mobile, unlike the temple. So Jesus is this tabernacle. He's this mobile heaven-earth place. So God became man to dwell with us and become a temple that walks around. So when you see Jesus walking around, all these Eden things keep happening. Because in Eden, there was no sickness, there was no death, there was no blindness. So everywhere Jesus goes as the heaven and earth person, the sick are healed, the lame can walk, the blind can see, the dead are raised. Because that's what Eden was like. And he is this person where heaven meets earth. He still is. And that's why if we are in Christ, we too are where heaven meets earth as the church. Um, The mission of Israel, of course, was the same thing as the Eden mission, right? Take this promise of God's dwelling. Of course, it's a small holy of holies, but you take this, I'll put in Jerusalem, and then that was the center of the world. I mean, you look at a map sometime. Everyone had to pass through Israel. This tiny little nation, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, Persia, they all had to pass through tiny little Israel the size of New Jersey. But you be a light to the nations from Isaiah. You are the light of the world from Isaiah. Jesus was reiterating that. For his mission. He didn't make that up. That's from Isaiah. Y'all are the light of the world, Israel. So they're given this piece of land. Think the garden in Eden. They're told to steward it well. And if you are unfaithful, you will be exiled out of this land. That's exactly what happened to Adam. Adam was unfaithful. He was exiled out of the garden. Israel was unfaithful to their mission. They were exiled to the east, away from their promised land. But that little strip of promised land was like a precursor to what God is doing for the whole world, the whole creation. Right now, it's just this little strip of land in the Middle East, but one day, Isaiah 65 talks about the new heavens and the new earth. I will make my glory cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. The whole earth will be the promised land. They looked, so, all that to say, that's the Old Testament, right? Israel looked forward to the day when God would make that a reality. That is why I had Isaiah 65 up here. For behold, Isaiah 65, 17, if you can't see it. For behold, I create a heavens and a new earth, a new heavens and a new earth. 
The former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who, who does not fill out his days. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit, Eden. They shall not build and another inhabit, be invaded. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. This one's more popular. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food, Eden. They shall not hurt or destroy all in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's hundreds of years before Christ. Yeah. Okay, so why does heaven need to be new? Um, it is a new heavens and earth. Okay. Yeah. So they've been separated, but it's they, they were never supposed to be separated. So it's not so much that heaven is renewed. And we'll look at that in Jesus' mission, what he really meant by that. And that is even what Sabbath was. The Sabbath day was this one day that they acted like they were already in the new heavens, new earth. So by Jesus' time, they would not even kill a fly or a mosquito on the Sabbath. Not that the mosquito didn't bite you, but the point was in the new creation or in the new heavens and earth, we will not kill animals. We will live in harmony with creation. So on this day, I'm not going to kill a fly. Monday, they'll kill, or Sunday, they'll kill a fly. Saturday, Sabbath. But Saturday was this day where we rest. We dwell in our homes. We act like it is already the new heavens and new earth. Right? So they already had this idea hundreds of years before Christ's incarnation. Um, I say that because this is a, a big list. Sorry to throw all this, but I, I did put a BC up there, meaning this, again, is before the first century. This is before Christ. From Isaiah, from Daniel, from Ezekiel, this was their messianic hope, meaning when Jesus shows up on the scene, almost all the people, save the priests, this, meaning the Sadducees, um, and obviously the Romans, but all the Jewish people, save the Sadducees, they all believed this, that God would bring his kingdom of God through his Messiah. Ever heard of that? <laughs> Sounds pretty familiar. That was an idea a hundred years before Christ incarnated, was that the Messiah would come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. They got that from Exodus, they got it from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from Daniel, from Jeremiah. When he brings his kingdom of God, Israel will return from exile. The enemies of God will be defeated. Right? They thought, of course, Rome, and that was the biggest problem between Jesus and the Jews he ministered to was they kept thinking Rome and he kept trying to show them your biggest enemy is Satan. They thought Rome had a priest because they didn't like the priests. Um, they believed the Messiah would cleanse and renew the temple. They believed the Messiah would establish himself as the Davidic king from the prophets, that he would raise the dead, that he would undo all the bodily ailments of this broken creation. The Messiah would uh, bring judgment on the uh, wicked and the righteous and he would usher in the everlasting age of peace. For us, of course, this is second coming. Of course, they didn't, they didn't have any concept of a first and second coming. But yet, they did have, some groups did have an idea of two messiahs, because it does say the messiah will be both priest and king, and they know the way the tribes are structured in Israel, you can't be both priest and king. But one person did blur that line, David, when he's the king who goes into the temple and puts on the priestly garments. So already the Davidic king is blurring that line between priest and king. That's a different study for a different time. But they thought, they thought this. This was their world. This line is the Messiah shows up. And then we would usher in, we'd let's say, just say eternity, forever. Messiah shows up. The pouring of the spirit, the resurrection of the dead, everyone. The defeat of God's enemies, restoration of the king, cleansing of the temple, return from exile. They thought all this would happen when the Messiah showed up and brought his kingdom of heaven. They call it this age and the age to come, but you don't need to remember that. But the Messiah shows up, and he starts kind of doing all these. He raises some of the dead. He heals a lot of sick, though not everyone. He does cleanse the temple and establish his own. He is enthroned as king, but he's killed in the process. So it didn't look exactly like they thought it would. And so... Um, <laughs> I'll explain that in a second. But first I want to understand what then Jesus came to do. And this is, I promise this is all building up toward Revelation. 
If you were to ask most people why Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, what was Jesus' mission? One side would say he basically came to be a Mr. Rogers, right? He came to be nice to children and the elderly and small dogs. And on the other side, it says, well, he came to tell us how to go to heaven when we die. But the message and the purpose of Christ was the kingdom of heaven. Heaven, to this is getting to a little bit of context, and if I'm not careful, I'll nerd out and go off tangent. Heaven, they didn't say God's name, they said heaven. So that's why the non-Jewish writers of the gospel say the kingdom of God, but Matthew says the kingdom of heaven, because they don't say God's name. But heaven is not just a disembodied immaterial space. Heaven is that Venn diagram, right, where God reigns. It's where God is in full control, his will is always done, his authority is totally exercised. So then the kingdom of heaven is what Jesus came to bring. Not, and again, when sometimes when you say the kingdom of heaven, people think going to heaven. Again, it's quite literally the opposite of Jesus' point. It's heaven breaking into the world. It is not Jesus telling you how to go to heaven. It is the kingdom of heaven breaking into the world. That's why we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Not let's leave the, the earth and go to heaven. It's bring the reign and power of God into the earth. So I like this image. Christ is the in-between person. He's the heaven and earth person. And the goal is exactly not this. <laughs> the goal is not rip, die, and then you float to heaven. Although, yes, when you die, you're with the Lord, whatever Paul means by that. He doesn't really work that out or explain it. I understand that. Yet, the goal is that this kingdom would invade the world and take over. Not in an oppressive sense. I'm not thinking crusaders. I'm not talking about that. But through the kingdom of righteousness, through loving your neighbor, through doing justice and good works, through forgiveness. Right? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Not Jesus is going to come tell us how to really be moral because those Jews got it wrong. The point was Jesus is going to tell us how to live within the kingdom where he is king. And we can live under his reign. Any questions or anything about that? This is a whole semester in itself, but... Okay, what's the blue side of that earth? I, I flipped them. I was hoping no one noticed that, but yeah. <laughs> this is heaven, Christ invading the earth, bringing the reign and rule of God into the earth. And so, we get this instead. Instead of that one decisive switch, we had this awkward in-between time. Jesus told about a dozen parables about that. That age will be like when you plant wheat, but then an enemy goes out and plants a bunch of weeds in the field. And then the workers say, should we go pick the weeds? He goes, no, because if you pick the weeds, you might tear up some of the wheat too. Let them both grow up, and at the end of the ages, we'll separate them. Jesus himself told a parable about this in-between time that we're currently in. This overlapping of the ages, right? Where the kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world but the kingdom of darkness has not been done away with. It's a lot different than going to heaven when you die. Your mission, you can already see your mission is starting to change. Jesus didn't describe our mission as sitting around waiting to go see him. It was being on the front lines of a kingdom. And the way you fight is through good works and faithfulness and the Sermon on the Mount. My favorite author says when Christ wants to bring his kingdom, he doesn't send in the tanks, he sends in the meek and the lowly. That's how he extends his kingdom. In, we're in College Station, Texas, right? It worked. I mean, it, it is working. This was in Jerusalem, and now we're in College Station, Texas, talking about it. Clearly, that was the way of doing it. It worked. Because the greatest kingdoms in the world haven't done that. Extended across the globe into every country. So it tells parables, the binding of the strong man. If you want to go in and take a strong man's stuff, first someone's got to go in and tie him up, the strong man, so that everyone else can come in and take his stuff. It's in Luke. That's exactly his image for this. The strong man's been bound. So now we're going and taking his, ter his turf back. It's probably, you've probably heard it called already, not yet. It's this in-between phase in which the kingdom has already been inaugurated, but it hasn't yet been inaugurated fully. We've already been raised from the dead by the spirit that gives us life, yet we haven't been bodily raised from the dead. Already raised, but not yet. We've already been saved, but still we're waiting salvation. Paul says, until we're saved. That's a future and a present thing, right? So it's this awkward in-between time. Where it, and I would say that actually is quite difficult because you'd think that the most uh, level, uh, and I don't know, level-headed is the right word, the most cheerful people should be Christians, but they can, this can actually be quite frustrating. 
because you've seen what the world can become if we would submit to the reign of Christ as king, but you also see what the world comes when we submit to the evil one as authority. It's frustrating. There's so much tension in this. Another image for that is Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, When he's inaugurated as king uh, in his cross, but then in his resurrection, the gospel writers are doing something quite interesting. Okay, I'll just leave that up there then. In all, of course, in all the accounts, how does the gospel end? Jesus in a garden with the Lord, right? and then he's hung on a tree. Again, Eden all over again. But this time it's tragic, it's horrific, and he's crucified on the tree that actually in Revelation becomes the tree of life. Okay, he's, he's the new, that's why Paul doesn't just pull out of a hat that he's the second Adam. It's through narrative of Jesus is showing himself as the second Adam. And then the gospel writers try to show you that when Christ raises from the dead, the kingdom is breaking into the world, but also, and these are interlocking, overlapping ideas, it is the new creation already. So Christ is, and those are pretty synonymous, the kingdom and the new creation, because new creation will be where God is totally king over all the earth. So when Christ raises from the dead, the gospel writers are trying to show you how this new creation is taking place. It's interesting in Matthew, there's a weird almost throwaway line. It says, uh, the tombs were also opened and the many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Ever heard that line? There's just a, but that's exactly the point is, many of the saints were raised from the dead, but not all of them. And they weren't given their resurrection bodies yet, right? It partially happened, but we're still waiting that fulfillment. We're in the awkward in-between time. Luke, of course, is going through great detail to show you Christ's resurrection body. He still has holes in his hands, right? So it's the same material, but clearly different because he's doing, he walks through a door at one point. So I know that it gets really, it gets to the edge of where words can no longer describe what's going on. That's why they do it through story because they can't explain what's going on. So they tell you a story about seeing the holes in his hands, but clearly he's transformed and different. And it says they dared not ask who he was. They knew who he was, but they couldn't believe it. And their eyes were open. Again, I have to do this. In the end of Luke, when they finally opened their eyes and realized who Christ is, it's when Christ broke the bread, gave it to them. They took it and ate it. It's word for word what happened to Adam and Eve. They took it, they ate it, and their eyes were open. That's exactly what Luke says, word for word. This is the new creation. John does it in quite an obvious so obvious it's kind of funny way. He says, they laid him in a tomb that was in a garden. Okay, if you know anything about first century Jewish purity, you would never have a tomb in a garden. That's the last place you put a tomb because now the whole garden is unclean. But it's a very obvious way for him to show even Christ's resurrection was in a garden. This is the new creation. Mary mistakes him for what? For a gardener. That's the right mistake to make, Mary. Exactly. She gets it. Well, she gets it. But John's point is, she even thinks he's like a new Adam. He's the new gardener of this garden, just like Adam was the gardener of the, of the garden in Eden. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did they, did they put in details that were not true? I don't think so. I think they emphasized something to get their point across. That's why I skipped Mark, because Mark is kind of emphasizing something entirely different, because he's writing to a Roman audience who thinks Jesus is a Caesar's Lord and Christ isn't. So he's really emphasizing the crucifixion as the enthronement. Of course, Luke does that too, but Luke breezes through the, the crucifixions, half paragraph. Like focusing on things that really happened. Yeah, oh yeah. That yeah, they are bringing out details that kind of serve their, the same way that if you were to write an autobiography about me, or a biography, my wife was to write a biography about me, they'd be the same stories, but you'd probably write as me uh, as friend and teacher, and she would write as husband. Right. It's all true, but you're emphasizing different things to prove your point. No, I think she definitely thought he was a gardener. No, yeah, I think so. But that's just quite a funny thing to pull out is that is about as obvious as he could get his point across is, by the way, we heard Mary thought he was a gardener. You know, how ironic is that? So, yeah, I, I definitely think they're real things. Um, but in, in, in all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, what's that? It's Genesis 1, 1, all over again. On the first day of the week, Christ raised from the dead. And they all emphasize after they had rested on Sabbath, now it's the beginning of the new creation. So that is why, 
Uh, this is actually the wrong verse. That's awkward. Uh, that's why in Second, I'll, I'll just read it. In Second Corinthians five seventeen, Paul says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come." But in that same letter, Paul will talk about when Christ returns, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He knows the, the new has not totally come, but the new creation is already breaking into and flooding the world. So if you imagine that Venn diagram again, you are new creation people. Yes, in one sense we're in the kingdom, but we're also in the new creation. And that, that is the basis for why we obey. Again, you're already living in a, not, not that you have your head in the clouds, it's Platonism. You are living in a creation that has not fully come yet, but already has come. Because in the new creation, that's why the first, in Galatians and Romans, some of the first letters Paul writes, the core of both Galatians, if you look at the central chapter of Galatians and the point to which he's writing Romans, the, the purpose of it, both of them are about racial unity. That's why we got Romans, was fundraising and racial unity. Because the point was, in the new creation, there will not be this enmity between races. And you are new creation people. So the clearest sign to Paul that you are new creation people is that you live like it. And you don't, you don't uh, discriminate against someone because of their race. That's why Galatians is all about table fellowship, about who can Jews eat with Gentiles. That was the whole point of Galatians. And Paul lost his mind because Peter started going back and saying, no, we should separate again. And Paul goes, well, if that's the case, then Christ didn't raise from the dead because this is the new creation. And the new creation, we eat together. So the new creation is flooding the world with justice and mercy and peace and love and the unity that heaven has. Um, I like this verse for, as in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the final enemy to be destroyed is death. So Christ is that first image. Christ is already reigning. But there's also another kingdom reigning. In, I believe it's in Colossians, no, I think it's in Thessalonians, he says, You have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Transferred. <laughs> There's two kingdoms vying for power in this world, but one's been disarmed and is dying. It's also this, so the whole purpose of Christ is, I call it the cosmic gospel. It's not my idea, and it's not necessarily what you have to call it. I just like that idea. It is the reconciliation of heaven and earth. Again, not going to heaven, leaving earth. It is the bringing together of heaven and earth, and that is what the scene we see in the end of Revelation. I like this verse because it, just read this until it makes sense. If you're ever lost, read the end of all the Gospels, and if you're ever lost in this topic, read this verse over and over until it makes sense. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross, again, and I hate this because you'll hear maybe Easter messages wherever you are on Easter that kind of talk about Jesus rose from the dead and that tells us that we're going to go to heaven with him. With that. No, he rose from the dead to bring together and reconcile heaven and earth. It's not, it's not like Lot's wife running away from Sodom and Gomorrah and it's just like destroyed in the background behind her. That's kind of people's idea of, <laughs> of heaven or of the Christian hope is that we run away to a disembodied heaven and earth is destroyed in the process. And that's quite sad. And I, maybe you've even heard that. Now, this is actually a good basis for, I'm not going to go down this route, but this is actually a good basis for Christian ecology, right? Caring for the environment, the world. You may have even heard, well, if God's going to destroy the world anyway, who cares if I speed it up a little bit? He's reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to himself. That's the same reason Paul says, don't destroy your physical body. Specifically, when he's talking about 
sex outside marriage, he says, don't you know you are the heaven and earth place? You are the temple of the living God and your body will be raised from the dead. So don't do to this body those immoral things because this is a body that will be with you forever. You will forever have a body. That was his basis of his argument. I love that. This, uh, let's see what I have next. Okay, I'll get to that. But this, uh, I, I would say that, sorry, I'm kind of lecturing you. It's just the last week. This kind of changes uh, evangelism. It's a lot broader of a scope than, don't you want to believe in Jesus so you can go to be with him in heaven forever? That's not evangelism. Evangelism is that Christ has shown that he is reigning over heaven and earth now, and new creation is flooding into the world. There is a different way to be human. There is a different reign that you can come under. There's still a personal aspect to it, right? Death is still in the world, and personally, we have all colluded with death to help him. But if you'll come under the reign of Christ, you can help fight against death. That's different than, hey, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? Have you ever thought about what happens when you die? All that stuff. That's very platonic. Now, if that's the only tool you got in your tool belt, that'll do. God can use whatever <laughs> incomplete gospel presentation, I promise. But this is also the, the beginning of the, we talked about last week, the psychosomatic needs of people, the body and soul needs of people, because people are body and soul. That's why in Acts, they're feeding the poor and sharing the gospel. They're not just, oh, I mean, on one occasion, Peter does say, money, gold or silver I do not have for you, but what I do have for you, he helps them rise and walk and shares the gospel with him, right? It's his body and soul care that the church has as new creation people. That's, you know, and the, the church in a general sense, at large, has tended to be on one end of the spectrum or the other. Either a church is basically just social workers and they have no idea why Christ died and rose from the dead, or they quite honestly are trying to save platonic souls for heaven and they want nothing to do with that social work stuff because that's not the gospel. And it's exactly in the middle that Christ is reconciling all things to himself, body and soul, on heaven and on earth, so the church is responsible for caring for both of them, right? We help people understand the reign of Christ so he can save their souls, but also we are helping feed the poor and help the marginalized. Those aren't, those aren't different. That's the kingdom. That's what happens in the new creation. Mm, I think I've got a few more verses here just to show you how prevalent this is. Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, not the son of God. He's not saying when Christ returns, necessarily. The revealing of the sons of God is when we are receiving new resurrection bodies. He'll explain that a bit later. So creation is waiting for the revealing of who we really are, sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not because it wanted to, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption. Not that creation would be destroyed, but that creation would be set free from the corruption that we've put on top of it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And think about, not to do closely, but think about childbirth, right? You're suffering through the pain of childbirth so that life can come of it and the pain will be over. That's the image. Creation is groaning. Have you ever, what an interesting image of the temple that animals that are innocent and have not done wrong die in the place of sinful humans. This sinless creation is groaning, waiting for its uh, release from decay. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, so creation, new creation, but also we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. This is our hope, new creation, bodily resurrection. And that is the final scene you'll see in a Revelation. I like this image too. The kingdom of God, right, breaking into the world and flooding it and flooding it and taking over until it becomes the new heaven and new earth. And there is no more chaos. There is no more death. There is no more evil. It's not jumping to the other side of the Venn diagram. It's flooding the world and, and taking over. So at the end of Revelation, you get this. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Death shall be no more, Isaiah 65. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. It's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, not souls floating up to heaven. And there's a few interesting things, just a few quotes Jesus says at the end of Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. 21.3, of course, the dwelling place of God is with man. 21.22, this gets quite funny mixed metaphors. And 21.22, it says, There will be no, well, he describes the new Jerusalem, which is the people of God. It says the new Jerusalem is the bride of the Lamb, so it's the church. And, and then John measures it, like Ezekiel measures the temple. And it comes out to 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. It's a cube, which is the exact dimensions of the Holy of Holies. So the new Jerusalem, the church in Revelation, comes down to the earth. Earth is renewed, and the people are the Holy of Holies, where God and man dwell in the Holy of Holies. Because once it was one high priest once a year, once it was just Adam, but now it's all the saved are with Christ in the Holy of Holies with him. And then it says in 21:22, there will be no temple for the Lamb of God and the Lord is their temple. The whole earth becomes the temple where God dwells with man. Okay. I'll end with that. I, lo- I love that though. That's a different hope of trees. And look at the end of Revelation. There's trees and there's river and there's fruit and there's people. I'm assuming there's animals, right? Because that's what Isaiah 65 said. There will be animals that not at war with one another. That wolf will lie down with the lamb. It's a lot more hopeful than how will we have fun in heaven. Right? We will reign over the physical earth and new physical bodies. So. <laughs> I'll actually end there. <laughs>